DiscerningHearts.com presents The Final Journey, Insights from a Catholic Deacon and Neurosurgeon with Dr. Stephen Doran. Dr. Doran is a board-certified neurosurgeon with over 25 years of experience and is also an ordained permanent deacon and serves as the bioethicist for the Archdiocese of Omaha. He is the author of To Die Well, a Catholic neurosurgeon's guide to the end of life, the book on which this series is based. His writings in bioethics, neurosurgery, and gene therapy for brain disorders have been widely published in national media outlets, academic journals, and neurosurgery textbooks. He is also the co-founder of Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study. The Final Journey, Insights from a Catholic Deacon and Neurosurgeon with Dr. Stephen Doran. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Dr. Doran, thank you again for joining me. I'm so grateful that you are taking time out to talk to us about these important issues. Well, thank you, Chris. It's it's not only my pleasure, but my blessing, my honor to be visiting with you about this. You're sharing with us so many incredible stories, and I think it's important for us to realize that there were more than stories. They're actual lives. They're actual people. Yeah, they are actual people, and, and names and some minor details altered just to protect their confidentiality, but these, these are real people, real stories. Absolutely. There are so many of us, I think, who could share a story at this point about the particular chapter that you addressed under the title, Palliative Care, Hospice, and Pain Control at the End of Life. Even that particular issue about pain control at the end of life, I experienced that recently with my own mother. And I think this is a a very important thing to kind of process, begin to think about long before you have to encounter it, because it is jarring if you have to deal with it in what we could maybe call the all of a sudden. What's your thoughts about that? It's it's a funny thing that I think so many things in life we see as happening to somebody else. And and despite everybody intellectually knowing that we're all going to die, this emotional and spiritual realization that, no, this is going to happen, you know, it's not just somebody else who's going to go through this. It's going to happen to me. It's going to happen to my spouse. It's going to happen to my parent or whoever. The kind of the normal, understandable denial that reality keeps us from really thinking about some of the issues at end of life. And, you know, some people, they, they they die suddenly, but a lot of people don't. And so we're put into these situations where either for ourselves or for somebody else, we're asked to decide something. What do you want to do? So much of medicine is not necessarily prescriptive, like you have to do X, Y, Z. That can be some situations where if you don't X, Y, Z, something bad's going to happen. More often than not, we're confronted with decisions that we have to weigh out and we have to balance. And so many of the things at the end of life are in this in this realm that there isn't one course you can chart that's going to work for everybody. And each situation is, is as unique as the individual. So I'm going to say this again and again, I'm sure during our conversations, if, if nothing else that comes out of, of someone reading this book, talk to somebody. Talk to somebody you trust, talk to somebody who shares your faith, who will make the decisions for you if you can't, or if you are in the position to make decisions that you've kind of prepared yourself so you're not overwhelmed. It's Medicine 
illness, death are so overwhelming. I think so much stuff just happens to us as opposed to participating. And so that's what I hope that comes out of this is that people have this desire to participate and not just be a passive observer in what's happening to themselves or their family member. I think for some, I know it was for me at one point in my life, that if I chose to begin to think about this, that I am somehow embracing a negative or I, something I don't want to deal with, I want to put it off if I don't think about it, somehow is it just not going to happen? Or I'm afraid of what the reality that I might have to encounter if I do ponder this. And yet, and as you know, as a deacon in the church, this is something that we're called to ponder all the time, especially at certain points in, say, even in the liturgical year, right? Well, I mean, even at our baptism, I mean, Paul says in Romans that we who have been baptized into the the death of Christ that were baptized into his resurrection. So from the very, and, and, and quite honestly, that's the, the scripture passage that I often preach from at baptisms is this reality that baptism is this introduction not only to the Christian faith, Catholic faith, but more so we're being baptized into Jesus Christ's death, but also into his resurrection. So this goes back not a few years for those of us who are a little long in the tooth, but it goes back to when we we're born, you know, that the preparation for when we die begins at our baptism. Yeah, I think that's, as a young parent, the last thing you want to talk about is life insurance. Because, you know, <laughs> I don't even want to look at death. And yet, as you said, I mean, this is one of those things that we have our hope that is firmly anchored in Christ. I heard a definition of hope once that it's two things, basically. You remember that God keeps his promises, so if you go back and you reflect on your life and those moments, you know, I know that he keeps his promises. There was even a young girl in Nazareth who made that declaration that he does keep his promises. And then the second part was that God is bigger than us. So, and he's stronger than us. So if you're anchored in that and you know that and he keeps his promises and you know you're going to be with him, then death doesn't have that possibility of a void or an ending that can never be sustained. We really do anchor ourselves in the faith of eternity. That can be a real challenge for people, don't you think? It can be. And I'm so glad you used the word hope because actually someone was asking me the other day, okay, so the title of the book is To Die Well, which kind of implies there may not die well, right? So what does it distinguishes a good death is, is indeed that hope. You just talked about the hope for the resurrection, the hope for life eternal, you know, and absent that hope, well, it's not all that surprising we have, you know, issues like, you know, euthanasia or what assisted suicide. I mean, I know we'll get to that later, but but I think that's that hope of the resurrection, which is what buoys us up, you know, throughout our lives and especially, you know, as the end approaches and you know, that when when someone's entering that final stage of life, whether they're enrolled in hospice care, palliative care, the ideal is that it's, it's not necessarily seem as like around some baton death march, you know, and the inevitable's coming and we're just going to get, you know, the end is coming, but I'm just have no say so in how that ends. But rather that as that journey, as opposed to death march, as opposed that the journey towards death is buoyed up with hope. 
And so I'm grateful you use that word hope because I think that's an important word that bullet points, you know, have someone you talk to somebody, right? And then hope. We're, I'm going to keep a list of bullet points in our conversations here. Hope, 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 hope has to be one of the bullet points of uh, of these conversations. Yeah, I think in the United States that we have a somehow, at least in the United States, maybe it's in other parts of the world too, that we've taken hope and we use it for the word which actually we're wishing. You know, I mean, I can say I, I'm hoping that my husband will have the, the yard done by the time I get home. And actually what I'm thinking, what I should be saying is I wish he does, because I really don't think he will. Right. No, that's a very good distinction. No, we, yeah. we don't wish upon a star when we're thinking about the everlasting life. It's, it's not the same. The reason I wanted to set that up in, in this particular part of our conversation, because now it comes to the point where you're making decisions about how, if you can, how this ending will come about and how you enter into it. And if it's something that, and I think we've talked about this before, when is it you're prolonging a life? And on the other hand, how long is it before you're prolonging a death? And I think that's, in this particular case, it's maybe easier if you've attained a certain age, you're saying, I'm ready, as opposed to maybe you're, you're younger or you're having to deal with the unexpected. You, you introduce us to a, a guy named Zach, for this particular conversation. And I thought that was a really interesting choice. Like he seemed like he was a very interesting fellow. Yeah, I, I think because I think in, in many ways we want to sanitize things and we want to have nice, neat stories that everybody is pulling together and it all works out and it's all good in the end. And and the story of Zach is kind of more typical that it's messy. You've heard the word, or even the, I think it's a book titled Life is Messy, right? You know, if life's messy, oh my goodness, uh, death is super messy. And Zach was young and his personal life was, was tough. He was estranged from his wife and blue collar guy, had a, had a daughter who we kind of lived for, but he wasn't terribly reliable. He wasn't reliable in his health care, and he got fired by his doctors because he wouldn't comply. And, 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 and I think his case is, well, maybe a bit on the extreme side, but not as, as much as you might think that people, as, as they go through their lives, you know, they don't always make good decisions. You know, I've not made good decisions at times, and, and Zach didn't always make good decisions. As a result, he alienated people who wanted to help him, but he wouldn't let them help him. His decisions may have possibly even led to him succumbing to his cancer when maybe he wouldn't have, who knows, you know, but but it, it, it's just one of those situations that I think it points out the reality that life isn't linear to begin with, and the end of life is nothing very close to linear. There's, you know, we're ping-ponging back and forth amongst all these various issues, and so I think that I chose Zach especially to kind of illustrate the challenges that come at the end of life. And they're as unique as any individual. You know, the social situation, families who maybe didn't get along to begin with now really don't get along when their mom's sick. Yeah, I mean, so so all these these complexities can't be covered in any single book because they're as unique as, as, as the situation involved. As it was with his, there's an underlying... Principle doesn't seem to be the right word. It doesn't seem to be full enough or a depth to it enough. But it's the only one I can think of. I mean, there's like an underlying thread 
in helping someone come to the decisions that that were finally made for him. Yeah, I, I think that, that, again, that thread is oftentimes unique to the situation. And in Zach's particular situation, his tendency to, to push people away, tendency to alienate people, maybe throughout his life before I met him, I don't know, but possibly that same tendency, that same thread continued to be an issue as his medical condition progressed. And so the the idea of dying well doesn't begin like two weeks before we're dead. The idea of dying well begins throughout our lifetime. So if there's a tendency in our life to push people away, if there's a tendency in life to alienate or whatever the case may be, it's only going to be accentuated as the end nears. And so I see some of these decisions and behaviors or, you know, undercurrents of, of Zach's life just being amplified as he became more and more sick. And you, you want the end of life to be a time when, when people rally to you and surround you and buoy you up and support you, but it doesn't always happen. So for Zach, his experience is one that you, we are reflecting on for that conversation around palliative care. Help us to understand what the lessons that we can learn from him. Well, I think if I can draw back for just a second, kind of making this distinction between palliative care and hospice care. So I think many people have heard the word hospice and, and probably a fair amount of palliative care, but hospice care has been wrong a long time. It's a covered Medicare benefit. The idea that someone who is nearing the end of their life are then eligible for certain types of services and things like that. And hospice care is wonderful. And my own mother was a hospice care nurse for many years. And I have nothing but great things to say about hospice, but it has its limitations that when you go into hospice care, there's an understanding that you no longer are going to really treat illness or, you know, certainly the there's a tendency not to treat. The focus is entirely or almost entirely upon comfort, and which is all good. But the problem was it, it could kind of become a little bit extreme. You know, there might be situations where like, yeah, this person is, they have a terminal illness and with additional care, they, they could live longer and have a good, you know, good life and be with their family and friends. But, and so hospice can create this artificial distinction like, well, okay, you're all in hospice care and you, certain services you're not, you're no longer eligible for. And, and that works out well with some patients, but not all, all the time. And so palliative care has been a more recent development where the recognition like, okay, this person has a disease that ultimately is going to take their life, but it may not be cancer. Maybe bad lung disease or bad heart disease or whatever, bad liver disease, and they are going to live, their life is shortened, and we recognize that, but if we don't treat them, there's going to be shortened even further. So you, you, you hold in balance the recognition of a process and illness which ultimately is going to end their life with the reality that treating them is still yet a good thing. And so I think the development of palliative care has been great. And there's not always a sharp line between hospice care and palliative care that you know, someone typically transitions from, you know, acute care to palliative care to hospice care, but it's 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 not necessarily a sharp segregation. But 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 I think that what Zach's case illustrates that it made sense to continue to treat him. You know, he had metastatic testicular cancer treated, then recurred, probably gonna be fatal, will be fatal. Yes, we know it's gonna be fatal, but yet along the way, continue to provide care that isn't just entirely directed towards comfort and but also directed toward, yeah, let's do our best to control the illness for as long as we can, as long as it's not overly burdensome to, the, to, to Zach or, or someone like himself. We'll return to the final journey with Dr. Stephen Doran in just a moment. 
Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app where you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Monsignor John Essif, Deacon James Keating, Father Donald Haggerty, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more. They're all available on the free Discerning Hearts app. Over 3,000 spiritual formation programs and prayers, all available to you with no hidden fees or subscriptions. Discerning Hearts Catholic Podcast, dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. An easy way to help discerning hearts is to follow us on Instagram and Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Our Instagram and Facebook pages are vibrant spaces where you can engage with daily inspirational quotes from the saints, streaming DH broadcast encounters, and updates about our latest offerings. On our YouTube channel, you'll find a treasure trove of video podcasts, interviews, guided meditations and prayers, and reflections from renowned spiritual leaders. These resources are carefully curated to provide guidance, wisdom, and insights that can help you discern life's challenges with a sense of purpose and peace. By subscribing, following, and engaging with Discerning Hearts on these platforms, you're not only enriching your own spiritual journey, but also helping to spread awareness of our mission. Every like, share, and comment helps us reach more people who are seeking meaningful growth and connection. So, please take a moment to follow us on Instagram and Facebook, and make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel as well, and then share with a friend. Join the Discerning Hearts community and embark on a transformative spiritual journey alongside fellow seekers. Your engagement not only benefits you, but also contributes to the growth and impact of Discerning Hearts. We now return to The Final Journey with Dr. Stephen Doran. The problem today in some cases is that there is a company called the insurance company, and they may not see the same type of value, or there's some type of financial concern in some cases. What can we do? And that's a very unfortunate thing if that were to occur, that the not all three have a, a sharing or a meeting of minds. I'm very I'm being very clumsy here, but do you find that to be an experience that some may have? It can happen, but I wouldn't want to be have people be too fearful that it will happen that it is frustrating at times to work with insurance companies and it is frustrating that what the family perceives or the patient perceives and their care providers perceive as the best course of action isn't necessarily embraced by the insurance company. So that that can happen. On the other hand, we are fortunate that for many people there are the resources to help care for them and you know, at the end of life or other times. So I don't think there's a necessarily de facto adversarial relationship with insurance, but it, it can be challenging. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I get that. I understand that. I only bring that up because it may not even be so much an adversarial thing, but we've kind of talked about that in our earlier conversations. And it wasn't the finances weren't necessarily the reasons why people chose 
to either continue to fight on or to be able to embrace what comes next. But in today's situation, there are those who may be basing their decisions on what might be better for the family as in financially as opposed to what's the best for them. What is best for the family? And maybe it's having their presence there, journeying with them as they move forward. Those are legitimate points. I think as when I have patients who are in a, in a situation, regardless, I, I try to encourage them and say, okay, to the best of your ability, if you could isolate yourself from the financial, the insurance, cool, let's bracket that for a moment, okay? What is it that you desire? You know, what is it that your family desires? And we'll circle back to the other issues later. I, it is hard to separate yourself completely from that. I, I get that. No one wants to be in a situation where they feel like they're, you know, consuming resources that that another person could benefit from. I, I understand that. But I try as best I can to tell people, just just kind of bracket that for now. Let's let's talk about what you feel is, is best for you, and we'll deal with the other issues later. And I think that's something that we have to take a look at ultimately, too, for family members to kind of dig deep into our hearts about what we might be able to offer. It's that sacrificial suffering that we will do for loved ones who are ill to be able to maybe give them more and to kind of go in deeper in that. Am, am I overstretching this? particular line of, of thought? No, I don't think so. I think that, I mean, I think throughout our lives, we are hopefully answering the call to live for the other and not for ourselves, you know? And so and hopefully the end of life is no different. So the decisions we either make for ourselves or for others are not, well, we have to hold this all in balance. I mean, we, we, we don't uh, submit ourselves unnecessarily to a self-sacrifice that we're not necessarily being called to. So and all those those things need to be held in tension and uh, looked at through the eyes of love. Do you talk in the book, it's on page 43, and I think these are really important, the four conditions that govern the particular principle that in making these decisions. And you say that first, the action itself must be morally good, or at the very least, morally indifferent, neither good nor bad. And second, only the good effect of the action must be intended. The bad effect, while foreseen, must not be intended. I might as well go ahead and read the whole thing. The third, the good effect, must not occur by means of the bad effect. That is, that the end does not justify the means. And finally, there must be proportionality, grave reason to permit the bad effect. This is something that I, do we actually use this these particular standards? Is this something that's normative? That's why I say it's good to go into having conversations, at least if not family members or folks that are actually enduring the, the moment of having to make the decisions, but people like chaplains, pastors, pastoral ministers, they kind of need to help along with the medical staff to kind of look at these things. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. And what you're referring to is what's known as the, in medical, Catholic medical ethics is the principle of double effect. And that principle is used in a number of situations and, and in the context of what we're talking about with pain control at the end of life is that, is it okay or is it morally permissible to give someone a medication that helps relieve their pain knowing that 
that medication could potentially hasten their death? And and the answer is a qualified yes. And and what the principle of double effect goes through is, okay, what are the conditions that must be met for this particular decision to say give a morphine or something else to somebody? And I would say, kind of, the, it, it's a very technical part of the book, and it's it's an important part of the book, but but it helps make this distinction between pain control versus mercy killing euthanasia. I even had someone say, what's the difference? You know, whether you give morphine and they die or whether you give someone a a dose of a barbiturate and they die, what's the difference? They're dead anyway, right? Yeah, but, you know, and so what's really super important here is if the take-home message here is what someone's intention is, right? If I do something intentionally and know it's going to bring about a bad effect, but that's not what I meant to have. That's not my primary goal. I, I don't mean to have so many times. My intention is to relate pain. And I recognize that in doing so, there's this anticipated but not intended bad side effect. I'm I'm going to give pain medications. I know doing so is a is is going to help control pain, which is good. But I recognize an anticipated but not intended side effect is that might depress their breathing, they could pass. That's way, way, way different than someone who says, I intend to kill this person. I intend to give them morphine so that they stop breathing and they die. And so, but the problem is intention is in, it's an internal thing. I, You can't look at me, Chris, and know what my intention is right now. I can't look at you and hear you and know what your intention is. Yet that's the crux of this. What did you intend to have happen? You know, did you intend for this person to die or did you just intend to relieve their pain? So the principle of double effect helps us guide those things, guide that decision-making. And it comes up in other issues too that we'll, we'll talk about later. But it, it helps us in many areas of medical ethics and very, very difficult situations. And pain control, which we're talking about, is one of them. But it comes up in other situations, ectopic pregnancies, you know, early induction of labor, you know, all this stuff that, thanks be to God, the church has really thought through so that decision-making isn't just willy-nilly off the cuff you know, situational ethics that people sometimes will um, accuse. And no, no, there's a, there's a backbone that, that helps, that undergirds why it is that is morally licit, morally acceptable to make these decisions in certain circumstances. But I would also tell you that, you know, for the most part, I, I don't want people to be fearful that in most situations, people can be, their pain can be controlled or other symptoms can be controlled and with medications that don't necessarily hasten their death. You know, that that the situation where medication may be hastening their death doesn't happen all that often. It can happen, but it's it's not as common as you might think. Yeah, I thank you for bringing clarity to that because that, from my own experience with my mother, I think it's more common to people's experience than I thought until I, it happened to me. And for my mom, in her particular case, she had been suffering from some dementia, and she had suffered a serious illness. She had gone through terrible mobility issues, where so much that she was in pain a great deal of the time. And when she had gotten sick and was in an, a care facility, they had put her into hospice. They said, you better come, because she had just stopped eating. And at some point, my mom was experiencing heavy cramping of her muscles. And they were giving her morphine because she was just in so much pain. And I remember sitting with her, and it, I raced to be with her. And I was able to get there at midnight in Michigan from Omaha. And 
and my brother who had been sitting at her side as she was struggling for her 23 hours and we just told him he could go home I'll stay and but I really thought both my brother and I thought knowing our mom we we thought she'd be for weeks and weeks <laughs> she's got a Scottish heart right and man we were giving her morphine for the pain it was about two o'clock in the morning and I really thought I was just killing time by myself my mom I played some music for her and the Young man came in and gave her more morphine, scheduled dose, and she was more relaxed. And I, I thought, well, I'll pray the Divine Mercy Chaplet. And so I did. And when it came to the very last prayer, my mom, who had been breathing steadily, Holy God, Holy Mighty One, Holy Immortal One, she breathed then, have mercy on us and on the whole world. And she breathed her last. It was just that quiet. I sat there and I thought, wow, the bigness of God, because she had been taken a half hour before. It would have been beautiful under 20 minutes singing to her or half hour later, it would have been a wonderful moment. But to have it happen at the very last moment of that prayer, and, and I'm not aware if she ever had a special devotion to the Divine Mercy. But in that hope, I had been reminded by a friend that the Lord said that for those who help promote the divine mercy, that he will be there in that last moment for family and friends. And there he was. He kept his promise. And I had in the back of my mind, as a niggling, while it was such a beautiful moment, I had for a long time, I thought, did we do the right thing giving her the morphine? Because did the morphine hasten her death. Did I do the right did we do the right thing? But on the other hand, it all came together the way that it was supposed to. As you were talking about this double effect, that's where the rubber really hits the road because it's I mean we there was no ill intent. Nobody wanted my mom to pass. But I also didn't want her to suffer and we had no intention by giving her the medicine but it was to take her pain so that she could be have some peace. I didn't mean to go on and on on that, that story, but it, I think it demonstrates that fine line where we're trying to, trying to walk here. And I think for somebody who might have had the thought, I just want it to be over with, I mean, I think that's, that's where you have to maybe need to go talk to someone in reconciliation or to kind of break that open with a spiritual leader to kind of help you reconcile in your own heart to have you come to some type of peace. Yeah, yeah, I think your story is a really, really good one because I, I think so many people can relate with that with uh, a family member, a spouse, a parent, or a child. And But I think you also really hit the highlight is that your intent, the caregiver's intent was to to relieve pain. And did the medications hasten her death? Possibly. But if they did, that's okay, because that wasn't your intent. And so even though sometimes these things, these ethical principles seem a little too esoteric and detailed, and your eyes start to glaze over when you hear them, it's like, oh, no, actually, they're there for a reason. They really help us. Now, yeah, I mean, the, the individual at the time probably has no idea what the principle of double effect means and really doesn't care. 
But I think what it does allow us to do is to have policies or or even more so just to provide reassurance and comfort that no 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 it's it's okay you know and it's okay that what you did uh, you you didn't cause your loved one to die because what what I find is oftentimes in retrospect there is this you know hindsight like oh if only if or only if I thought you know if I hadn't done this or I had to this would things have ended differently and and I am I therefore somehow responsible and culpable for what happened and I see that and in many situations where decision-making is being thrust upon a, a person, a family member, and they do the best they can, and then then they look back and say, oh, gosh, did I do the right thing? Normal, very natural, and, and, not, and, and I wouldn't even necessarily discourage someone from looking and asking that question. I think that's fine. I think that's healthy. But, but I think, again, just coming back to what is it that your desire is, your intention, but... To your point, our motives and our intentions aren't always 100% one way or another. We're human, and we may in our heart of hearts intend or desire a certain thing, but other competing interests sneak in. And that's where, to your point of like, okay, I need to work through this. I need to talk to somebody. I need to go to confession or talk about spiritual, whatever. Because it seems like we're always a little bit conflicted, right? There's always always a little bit of something that's in... Um, conflicting us in situations. So I think I think it's okay to ask questions. I think it's okay to bring it either to confession or to a spiritual direction, even if you you know in your heart of hearts what your intention was, but yet also recognizing my intentions are never 100% pure. I get that. That's human. And I think that's the real value, not only in your book, but in the conversations that you're having with us now, because it is about dying well in the future, right? But it's also reflecting on the experiences we've had in the past. And we're not a Eucharistic people if we don't believe in the power of transformation. And it's okay to go back and revisit. We may want to say, I don't ever want to look that. That's done now. I can't change the past. I can't go back. I can't undo it. But wait a minute. What is it? There's an area of your life you don't want to look at. If there's something that is being, you turn your head and you never want to revisit that, What's going on there? Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe Christ wants you to go back there. Yeah, I mean, growth comes about by reflection, and reflection by its nature is thinking about what's already happened, right? We don't really reflect about what hasn't happened. We reflect about what has happened already. So, I mean, you have to, again, hold things in balance. You don't want to beat yourself up. You don't want to be, you know, overly harsh on yourself. But but it's normal. It's healthy to say, okay, let's think about or pray about what's happened my mom was dying, this was going on, you know, what was going on in my heart at the time. Those are all good and healthy, absolutely. And I think that's, it's important that we can do that and know, especially, and we're talking in the context of two Catholics and our particular experience and our understanding of uh, the grace that can come from the, the healing, that being a member of the church is about healing, that these are opportunities to go back we hear this so often, don't we? And maybe you've experienced this, those who have made a decision to end a pregnancy, and I'm not using the term abortion, that there are those who have made certain decisions because their understanding at the time was such. But now that maybe they've had experience and they're growing in their faith, and here's an area of Christian doctrine where, oh, I don't want to look at that because then I have to revisit a choice or I might convict myself of something, which is not how the gentle Jesus does this. It's not how the Holy Spirit works, right? 
But you shouldn't be afraid to do that. I mean, this is where there's Dr. Doran, but then there's Deacon Doran trying to help those people come to a sense of peace so that they can truly die well. So again, in just kind of closing out this particular aspect of our conversation, do you have any final thoughts or reflections on those who may have to approach palliative care or entering into hospice? What kind of guidance would you give them? Yeah, I would say that and I, I think this guidance holds true in all areas of medicine, but I think in particular at the end of life is whether it's you who is a person who's dying or the person who's making decisions on your behalf, don't be a passive participant. Be be engaged, be involved. Understand what the goals of treatment are. Make sure you articulate either for yourself or for the other person what their desires might be and I think so often what I see happening is it's like this steamroller and people just kind of get run over, you know, and, and I apologize on behalf of the medical community that sometimes in the name of efficiency or whatever, we, we tend to treat problems that way. So be involved, understand, articulate, and but that means having conversations in advance, right? That means there's some people who say, you know what? If given the choice between being awake in pain or being peaceful and asleep, I'll choose being awake in pain every day. I, I, I want to be awake. I want to see family. I don't care how much pain there is. And then there's other people who feel differently. Said I, you know, I, I, I pain just overwhelms me. It, it overwhelms me to think about being in pain at the end of life. But unless you articulate that, you know, and and, and either is okay. It's 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 not like one's bad and one's good. You know, they're both okay you know, someone's approach to the end of life. But unless you start that act of participation well before you're sick or dying, you know, things will just happen to you, you know, and not because of ill intent or because someone doesn't care, but medicine's kind of set up to care pathways and all these things are just kind of automatic, which is fine. But I guess I would just say, don't be passive about this at any point in your life. Well, you're helping us to do that. And I'm, again, I'm so grateful in our next conversation, we're going to talk about it. not only not, don't be passive, but be proactive. And that's in, about advanced directives, how to kind of not only help yourself, but help your loved ones. Yeah, that'll be a good conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Steve Doran. Thank you very much, Chris McGregor. You've been listening to The Final Journey, insights from a Catholic deacon and neurosurgeon with Dr. Stephen Doran. To hear and or to download this episode, along with many others, visit DiscerningHearts.com, or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, which is to offer authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel it's worthy please consider a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for The Final Journey, Insights from a Catholic Deacon and Neurosurgeon with Dr. Stephen Dorn.